You're listening to the Domecast, where news and observer journalists take a look back and forward in North Carolina politics. Hello and welcome to this week's edition of Domecast. I'm Colin Campbell from the News and Observer sitting in the hosting chair this week. And uh, this week uh, we got a little bit of a departure from the uh, standard uh, campaign fair. We still saw um, events with uh, with Donald Trump and uh, with Hillary Clinton this week. But all that uh, this time around seemed to have gotten overshadowed uh, by House Bill 2 being back in the news uh, as a result of the NCAA and the ACC announcing over the course of the week that they were going to pull – uh, various sporting events, championships, and the like from North Carolina instead uh, move those into other states uh, because of their concerns uh, about discrimination-related issues uh, with House Bill 2. It's something that uh, has been uh, percolating through the pipeline, it seems, for a while, particularly since the NBA uh, decided to pull the All-Star game out of Charlotte. Uh, and so this is going to have an impact, uh, probably millions of dollars uh, of economic impact uh, out of some of the, the major cities, including uh, locally. Cary uh, has been a, a pretty big uh, host for things like baseball and soccer that, that they will no longer be hosting um, at least this year and, and possibly into the future, depending on the fate of, of House Bill 2 in the legislature and in, in state politics going forward. So uh, it sort of catapulted House Bill 2 back into the news cycle. It's made it more of a, a campaign issue. I think it was going to be a campaign issue no matter what, but some of the, the news-related developments that have, have put it on the front page had, had kind of died off over the last few months, and, and this has definitely resurrected it and, and certainly gotten it uh, into the mindsets of a lot of people that perhaps weren't paying as much attention. Uh, certainly notable that uh, a lot of the sports radio folks seem to have jumped in and are, are now very vocal House Bill 2 opponents. I think some of them probably were before, but uh, taking sports away from sports fans uh, ha- has a, a pretty big impact. Uh, so we've been spending the week going through all the different ramifications of that. So we're going to talk about that first. Um, and then later in the show, we're going to hear from candidates for lieutenant governor uh, as well. And of course, we'll wrap up as always with headliners of the week. Uh, so we're going to start out uh, talking a little bit with uh, Will Doran of the News Observer and PolitiFact North Carolina. He did a thing this week uh, looking at this claim that we're hearing, particularly from proponents of HB2. They've made the claim that essentially they don't understand why the NCAA and the ACC are singling out North Carolina. They argue that there's there's similar um, laws on the books in, in other states that you aren't necessarily penalizing those states for, that there's a number of states that have uh, joined in a, a lawsuit against the Obama administration for their uh, the federal uh, bathroom mandate that uh, in school facilities that uh, transgender students be allowed to use the bathroom uh, of the gender they identify with. So their question is, is why North Carolina? Why are you sticking it to us and, and leaving out those? So Will looked into that. Will, tell us a little about the, uh, the reasons the NCAA did what it did and how that seems to only really apply to North Carolina. Sure, sure. Well, and first I should note that, um, you know, when, when people talk about, you know, the uh, North, North Carolina not being all that unique in its, uh, in its discrimination laws, uh, what they're referring to is that the state um, doesn't protect, uh, in most cases, LGBT people from uh, employment discrimination. Um, now that uh, state employees are protected because of the executive order that the governor signed after HB2 got a lot of bad press, um, which is important to note, but that only impl- applies to state employees. That's not a statewide thing. And there's about 29 other states without protections for LGBT employees. So that they are correct on that when they say that North Carolina is not alone. 
Um, and as you mentioned, I think most of those other states have also joined in, uh, you know, on, on the government side here in the HB2 lawsuit. But with that being said, that's not what the, the NCAA was, uh, uh, was against. That's not what they mentioned uh, when they pulled out of here. What they mentioned were uh, they actually had four different points. Um, one of them... Uh, was that, uh, you know, obviously the bathroom issue of HB2. Um, and on that, North Carolina is alone. We are the only state that has specifically a law um, that restricts, you know, which, which bathroom people of which gender can use. Um, most states just kind of, you know, never had a law because it was never really an issue in the past. Um, yeah, so it's not really spelled out explicitly. Right, yeah. Um, they just, you know, kind of, uh, you know, I guess common sense as a word that we've been <laughs> hearing a lot in here, but most states just don't even have a law on it because they never thought they needed to. North Carolina was the first to go down the path of uh, explicitly uh, restricting bathroom access. There's been one other state, Washington, which um, has specifically allowed um, gender identity to determine which bathroom you use. So they've kind of gone in the opposite direction. Um, and that that was kind of what uh, what Charlotte was trying to do with their local ordinance was follow Washington, uh, you know, which obviously set this whole thing off. Um, so in that in that sense, uh, North Carolina does stand alone. Um, a couple other things in which we're not entirely alone on, but um, pretty pretty unusual nationwide, are we uh, we have banned individual city and county governments from offering uh, discrimination protection to LGBT people. Um, that's something that only uh, Tennessee and Arkansas have done as well, and. Uh, we also have passed a law allowing magistrates to um, refuse uh, to give, you know, civil uh, civil matrimony to gay couples, and that's something that only Utah has done. Um, and then finally, we are um, the subject of a uh, travel ban from other states, where they have, you know, banned state employees, which include, you know, public university, you know coaches and things like that for sports teams from traveling here. And the only other state um, with that kind of ban is Mississippi. Um, but Mississippi actually was has, has been under an NCAA ban since 2001 uh, due to its use of uh, a, basically a mini Confederate flag on its state flag. Interesting. So I think some of us see this sort of sports ban as being a little bit unprecedented, but I guess it's not um, because Mississippi has been yeah, the, the target of this for a while. The NCAA has used its power before um, to influence political discussions. Um, obviously, there's Mississippi and uh, South Carolina was under a ban for the same reason, uh, the use of Confederate emblems up until I believe just last year, you know, when obviously they, uh, you know, took that very well publicized kind of stance against the flag statewide. And now they are back back in play for these postseason events. And they've actually been trying to poach some of the ones that yeah, North I Carolina saw a has lot. lost. The, you know, the Charleston area and I guess Columbia and Greenville, the big metro areas are like, hey, we've got sporting event facilities that would be <laughs> lovely for these events. Yeah, you know, Greenville, where Clemson is, obviously has tons of stadiums uh, for Clemson. I assume, you know, there's probably some municipal, you know, arenas and stuff like that as well. Um, so, yeah, they, they've been trying. Now, now that they're, you know, back in the game, <laughs> after beating their own band, they are trying to quickly... Uh, you know, gobble up some of these events that are suddenly looking yeah, for Yeah, it's definitely a role reversal for the Carolinas that a lot of people have pointed out is that uh, suddenly South Carolina seems like the more socially progressive Carolina, which was always the, the other way around, but uh, as a result of uh, particularly HB2, but probably some, some other policies as well. But uh, certainly 
makes a big change in, in the political landscape around here. And um, it certainly does. Probably great thing for South Carolina right now. They're, they're oh, I'm sure they're on. ecstatic. Yeah, yeah. Um, they probably don't want HB two to be repealed. They would rather keep it on the books forever and uh, slowly gather a few more jobs and, and sporting events than they had before. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, of course, there is the huge political angle of this. I mean, this is a decision that comes uh, less than two months out from uh, a major election for governor, for legislature, for president, for U.S. Senate in North Carolina. So it's uh, it's impossible to, to look at the ACC and, and the NCAA decisions without looking through at, at it through a political lens. Uh, so Craig Jarvis from the News and Observer is here. He obviously covers uh, the governor's race extensively. Uh, Craig, how is this playing out in the, the governor's race? What are we hearing from McCrory, from Cooper, how will this impact this, the state of the things? Yeah, the first uh, first thing I'd observe is we weren't hearing from McCrory at all. This all came down, or the NCAA part of it came down on Monday night. And uh, people, everybody and his brother was falling all over themselves to issue statements and opinions, you know, one way or the other. But the governor uh, was sort of nowhere to be seen. We weren't even sure literally where he was. We knew that he had been in D.C. on Monday for a uh, business summit with legislators and then a fundraiser at a law firm in D.C. And uh, we knew that the Republican Governors Association later in the week was having its annual convention. So we figured he might be there, but we really couldn't get a word from the uh, from the governor's campaign or his office about where the heck he was. Uh, eventually, they did release a statement. I think it was like 20 hours or something after yeah, it was, it was the afternoon after. I guess it was announced at 7 or 8 p.m. Monday night, and then it was Tuesday afternoon Tuesday. that we finally heard from the governor. Finally did, yeah, with about a paragraph, which, you know, he said he sort of uh, alluded to um, to the NCAA as being the the villain here. They're, he, he said they were what? They were bullies. They were tax exempt and a couple other. Yeah, he didn't go far, as far as the NCGOP did. Now, the, uh, I guess that was the, the spokeswoman for the, the state Republican Party, as well as Lieutenant Governor Dan Forrest, both brought up this Baylor rape case. And we're oh, really yeah. trying to right. throw every piece of dirt that you could find on the NCAA at the NCAA. But yeah. the governor, I guess, was a little bit less forceful. Right. No, yeah, he was a little more circumspect about the whole thing. And then the, that was kind of repeated when the ACC followed up with its announcement that it was going to be pulling out games. And he, he finally issued a, uh, a, a delayed but shorter version of, of the earlier statement. Yeah, word for word, the same statement <laughs> yeah. minus the sec- third sentence, yeah. I think. Yeah, so he's been very busy doing something. I'm just not sure what it what it was. He he finally did surface on Thursday, yesterday morning in Charlotte at a business event, which they allowed reporters to attend. And he just kind of ran through a, uh, a, a litany of, uh, of different uh, things, mostly about HB2. I think his first comment was, uh, we sat there with his kind of what now famous Governor Pat Grin and said, well, if anybody wants to know, I've been out walking my dog, uh, which I thought was kind of a direct response to some of our efforts to find out where he was. But um, anyway, um, what this means for him, it's hard to know. I think it's, it can't be good for him. We're less than two months from the election. Uh, it, it looks bad. Um, couple people I talked to, uh, former now former state representative Mike Hager, said people out in areas that are rural parts of the state, like he represents, have, you know, their values are that they don't like this whole idea of, eight, of, uh, of bathroom access for anybody. Uh, they're, they're strong HB2 supporters, and, they, and, they, and that would continue to play well for the governor. They're going to be glad he stands firm. Uh, the, you know, the urban areas less so, and you know, we're starting to get a kind of a crack in the in the foundation, I would think, from state legislators, I think. I mean, what, what are you hearing? Yeah, so that's been the interesting thing this week is, uh, you know, up until now we've had 
various job-related announcements of things not coming to North Carolina. We've had all the concert cancellations. We had the NBA All-Star Game. And throughout that time, we really were not hearing from any Republican legislators who would say, at least not publicly, that they wanted to repeal or at least repeal most of, of House Bill 2. Suddenly this week after the, the NCAA announcement, we hear from Tamara Beringer, a senator uh, from the Cary area who's in a pretty hotly contested uh, re-election battle with a, a Wake County school board member who's a Democrat. Um, and she uh, has been getting a lot of heat on it, uh, particularly because Kerry is, is sort of the epicenter of the, the sports losses with NCAA and, and ACC. Uh, so she is now saying, you know, we need to look at this and, and essentially repeal most of it, even though she still voices some concern about uh, access to bathrooms and whether there's some safety issues there. She was pretty fo- followed up fairly quickly by uh, Rick Gunn, who is a senator from Alamance County the day after with a similar statement. Uh, then on Thursday, I, I spoke to Representative Gary Pendleton from Raleigh. He's an interesting case because he didn't actually show up the day that they passed HB2. He was one of three Republicans in the House who uh, opted essentially not to come. They, they had various excuses. They were actually an excused absence, uh, but they were three of the, I guess, more moderate Republicans, Chuck McGrady and, and, and Charles Jeter, along with Pendleton. Pendleton basically told me yesterday he wasn't making any excuses not being there. He just didn't want to come because he felt he would be harassed into voting, uh, his word actually actually harassed, into voting for something he didn't want to vote for. Uh, now, his opponent has pointed out to me that uh, – he ultimately signed the document that called for a special session. Um, he later, uh, in a couple of formats, uh, voiced some support for HB2. He put his business's name on a list of businesses that was supportive of HB2. So she's she's viewing this as sort of a, a waffling for him. But uh, certainly it indicates to me that uh, people are doing internal polling, particularly in these urban and suburban areas, and they're seeing that that HB2 could sink them. And Pendleton told me as much. He said he he knows he's probably going to lose some votes because of HB2 because people associate with him him with that. They're not necessarily hearing all the the nuance in his position on that because you know a legislative race is going to get massively overshadowed this year by the governor's race and everything else. Uh, but it, to me, it underscores particularly for the governor's race. And I think we've looked at the numbers. And, you know, Craig, I think you're, you probably have noticed this, too. It seems like the governor's race will be won or lost uh, a lot in the suburbs. Um, you know, the rural areas, I guess, are, are pretty strongly McCrory. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think that's probably what's going to happen, and that's where they're going to focus. Uh, focus uh, kind of similar to what you just said, uh, Representative Leo Daughtry, who's leaving, also said he thinks it's going to hurt the Republican ticket in general, you know, from the governor on down. And... Uh, I will tell you the Cooper campaign couldn't be happier because this takes all the attention this week away from the points that the, that um, the McCrory campaign had been trying to score against Cooper, which is you know the crime lab problems, not defending the state against lawsuits, and uh, you know so this has been all. Uh, all McCrory having to defend HB2 again, which he never wanted to do in the first place. But Yeah, and that was the fascinating thing in watching the, uh, the video of the Charlotte event. And, and you can go on our website, newsobserver.com, and, and actually watch a two- or three-minute clip of him speaking. Um, but we've watched, I don't know how many McCrory speeches uh, the time he's been in office. This was the first time I saw him go through an entire... Uh, question about an issue, and he had his arms folded, kind of almost a little bit of a pouty look that he just, it was clear he was not happy to be taking questions on on this topic, and and was fairly forceful. I thought, 
Um, his rhetoric on transgender people had shifted somewhat. Um, I think initially in the, the early weeks and months after HB2, a lot of his, his commentary about transgender people is, is this is a really sensitive issue. We've got to, to make sure we're balancing safety concerns with uh, making sure we're being respectful towards people who have this gender identity situation. On his speech yesterday, it was, it was something to effect of, you know, uh, gender is your anatomy. It's not who you think you are on a given day. It was very, I mean, I think transgender people were very quickly outraged by that, saying that you clearly don't understand what transgender is. Yeah, I noticed that, too, even with the uh, lieutenant governor, who's been one of the key proponents of this whole thing. He uh, early on was saying, was kind of conciliatory, saying, you know, I know that, that there are people out there who have um, have issues or they have um, conflict, things that they're struggling with in terms of their sexuality, and we understand that. But now it's become much more dismissive, much more like somebody who might feel gay for a day or something. Uh, it's, it's very odd. Of course, there, McCrory and, uh, and and Forrest and the rest of them have to uh, keep this focused on the bathroom issue, which is only one part of what HB2 is about. It's still this whole issue of uh, the discrimination that that can be allowed in public or you know in hotels, restaurants, um, retail stores, that kind of thing. I mean, that's a real that still remains kind of the really the most far-reaching potentially part of the law. I think. Yeah. And has McCrory really gotten direct questions about, hey, does this law allow a restaurant to say? a gay couple can't eat here and have legal protections for that. It seems like the, the legal experts sort of differ a little bit on, on how that would actually work, but is mm-hmm. he willing to defend uh, the idea that you're, you're perhaps free to discriminate if that is indeed the case with this law? I haven't heard that from him. He, uh, he wasn't at the Council of State meeting Monday, which kind of got, that's what first got everybody into the where's, where's the governor uh, trope. But uh, uh, Lieutenant Governor Dan Forrest was there, and I asked him about that. I said, is that, uh, is that okay with you that the law seems to allow that kind of discrimination? And uh, I guess he had a two-part answer. One was, that's not true, that, that doesn't allow that. That's just a made-up hyperbole. Uh, secondly was, if that was the case, the American way is you just don't go to that restaurant anymore. You don't check into that hotel anymore. So, so I guess his position is that the free market the would free solve market. Uh, discrimination right. issues if someone were in need right. to try to discriminate. Right. There's not going to be discrimination because the free market would punish those who discriminate. Yeah, well, so it'll be interesting to see what happens with the other aspects of the bill and, and whether they're really willing to defend that, particularly when we get to finally get to hear that governor's debate uh, in October. Yeah, well, and you saw, I think, I think it was last week too, some, uh, you know, some... Uh, maybe blame shifting. You could say McCrory, you know, when he said that, oh, you know, there's four parts of HB2 and the chamber wrote two of them and, right. you know, which I would assume was a reference to the more, you know, the business ones about, you know, not being able to raise the minimum wage and things. Yeah. And there was a, the the lawsuit provision, which eventually was taken out of HB2 that you couldn't necessarily sue for workplace discrimination in state courts. That was for a long time rumored to be related to the Chamber of Commerce. That, and that the Chamber still denies having anything to do with any part yeah, of it. Yeah, which so is, he, is bizarre uh, optics to yeah. me. Like the, yeah. that you would have a Republican very positioning himself as pro business governor saying the Chamber of Commerce, the state's largest pro business organization, did this. And the state saying, no, we didn't. Essentially saying the governor's a liar, which is bizarre. I yeah, mean, I, I don't and then know we haven't gotten to the bottom of what's, who's telling the truth here. No, I don't know how he stepped into that one. If it was just a, a mistaken, bad, you know, off the cuff remark or 
but I, you know, and he I, hasn't elaborated because no, I don't think he's taken. No, he hasn't taken questions from the media at all this week, as far as no, I know, because he no. wasn't at the council of state meeting. Right. And then this thing in Charlotte, uh, I saw the media reports down there were that he was taking some questions from the audience at this business group he was speaking to. Uh, but once he was done, the you know gaggle of reporters there, he he right. raced out the door and did not speak to. So. Yeah. Uh, hopefully at some point we'll get a chance to, to ask the governor to uh, give us some specifics about this and, and who's who's right, who's wrong. Because I'm sure there are records there that uh, somebody could release if indeed there was some pressure from the chamber, but we'll see. Yep, so that's uh, it gives us a lot to look at in the next couple of weeks. I'm sure the, the HB2 um, discussion is not going to die down, and, and there's talk that there could be some other sporting events, uh, nothing obviously on the scale of the HCC or the, the NCAA uh, that might make some announcements in the coming weeks. So uh, we'll be watching for that. Uh, we are going to take a quick break, and um, immediately following the break, we're going to hear from the candidates for lieutenant governor. Now, I should preface this by saying, um, as you've heard in, in recent Domecast, uh, Jordan Schrader, uh, who, who often hosts the podcast, has been sitting down with some of the council of state candidates um, in, in short interviews just to, to get a sense for uh, where they stand, who they are, uh, what their races are about. Um, and we've invited all three, actually, of the, the lieutenant governor candidates, the, the libertarian in the race, as well as the the uh, Democrat and the, the Republican. Uh, of those, only Democrat Linda Coleman uh, was willing to uh, come on the podcast and uh, and talk to us at length. Uh, so we will hear more from her than we're going to hear from anybody else in this next segment. Um, as a result of that, um, you get more airtime when you actually play the game. Um, but uh, we'll follow up her comments with a couple of snippets uh, of uh, Dan Forrest from the lieutenant governor debate that was held earlier this week in Wilson, just in in the interest of fairness. So uh, listen for that. And then uh, we'll be back in a couple minutes uh, to do uh, headliners of the week. I'm Linda Coleman, candidate for lieutenant governor of North Carolina. And what do you hope to do if you uh, become lieutenant governor? Really, I hope to give North Carolina's middle class a fighting chance again. So many of the policies that have been passed by this current General Assembly have left the the middle class behind. Uh, They are policies that really do not address the the struggles and the shrinking middle class of today. Uh, If you're lieutenant governor, uh, you would serve on the State Board of Education. So uh, what kind of education policies could people expect from you? I think policies that really put emphasis on appropriate funding so that our schools have the uh, resources and support that they need to teach our our kids, uh, policies that address the uh, benefits and the dignity of our teachers, rewarding uh, our teachers so that we can better recruit and retain them, uh, making sure that we get North Carolina's uh, teacher pay back up to the Uh, national average. Uh, We were once a beacon of light in the South in terms of education in North Carolina, and we need to return to that place. So all that I could do to help promote North Carolina's uh, education system. A lot of the decline in uh, education funding levels and teacher pay funding levels compared to other states came under Democrats. So uh, what why do you think that Democrats would be better uh, positioned to increase those? 
Because we've always known the value of education and um, all of the uh, ever ever since I've I can remember the majority of the budget went to education under Democrats because we knew that education was the uh, key to opportunity. We knew that if our state was to be great um, and to stay great, that we needed to have a great education system. And so that we looked at at it not so much as a funding uh, source, but as an investment. And the the share of the budget is still above, it's still above a half, 50%, correct? Or is that? Well, you have to look at the fact that North Carolina's population has grown tremendously. We now have over 10 million people in North Carolina. And so when you look at the increase in the number of of students that you have, you, and you look at the per pupil spending, uh, you know that you're going to have to increase the budget uh, sizably to keep up with the uh, with, with those increases. Uh, should should North Carolina continue to have uh, charter schools, uh, vouchers, and other kinds of alternative uh, schools or alternative school systems? Uh, I think you've said that they uh, sort of compete with the, the traditional school system. They do. Um, I would say that uh, charter schools, let me just begin with the, the traditional public schools, and to say that our Constitution requires that every child uh, receive a basic sound education in North Carolina. So in keeping with our Constitution, we need to do, we need to make sure that we are following uh, what's required of us by our, our Constitution. Uh, second, uh, with the charter schools, when I was in the General Assembly, we had uh, a cap of 100 schools, charter schools. We could have no more. Uh, Those charter schools were to serve as laboratories or um, for for best practices because they did not have the same regulations and uh, accountability that the traditional schools had on them. And these best practices then could be transferred to the public school system. I don't have a problem with that. Uh, But the vouchers uh, because they they uh, fund uh, religious schools, uh, one of which I understand uh, discriminates against uh, certain groups, uh, private schools um, and the um, home schools. That that does drain money from our traditional public school system. And now we have another school system, which is our Achievement School District, which is going to further drain uh, funds from our traditional public schools. So, no, I don't think. And we already have a system in place for turning around low-performing schools. And so we need to uh, put the emphasis on them and not bringing something else in because when you look at what the achievement school districts are and how they are to operate, it looks like they are privatizing public education, and that is definitely not the way that we should be going in North Carolina. So you would want to eliminate vouchers and achievement school districts? Yes. Charters, you'd want to put it back to the 100 cap? I w- yes, I would, I would lower the cap uh, because right now there is no cap. 
uh, public schools are, uh, or charter schools are public schools, and they're, they are very accountable. In fact, you know what happens with a charter school that fails in North Carolina. We can shut it down. Do you know what happens with a traditional public school that fails in North Carolina? You throw more money at it. That's what's been happening for decades. And do you know that uh, in charter schools in North Carolina, listen, I'm agnostic on this. I, I'm in favor of traditional public, charter, public, all of the above. But listen, Charter schools, public charter schools in North Carolina, outperform traditional public schools in every single demographic category except gifted and talented. That tells you something. That tells you that parents are making this choice. There's a lottery system. They don't get to pick their students. The parents get to choose the education. They have waiting lines for them. We lifted the cap on charters because parents asked for it. They wanted that choice in education. Mr. Forrest? The state's Opportunity Scholarship Program gives tax credits to pay for private schools including schools with religious affiliations. To what extent should the state fund religious education of its children, and what role should religion play in public education? Uh, well, let me say this. Can you imagine, <coughs> excuse me, in this day and age, being a single mom who is trying to raise kids in a school district that is failing, perhaps one that has been failing decade after decade after decade? Opportunity scholarships are just that. They're about creating opportunity for the poorest students in North Carolina. Can you imagine saying no to that mom that wants the best for their kids, just like the president of the United States wants the best for his kids? I admire that he has the opportunity to send his kids to the best university or the best school, high school in the United States of America. But you know what? We should give the same opportunity for all parents. We should open up that opportunity. There is no reason to say that only government schools are the answer for, for parents. If there's no other choice for them, why would we not give the poorest students, the poorest parents in the state of North Carolina an opportunity to take a, an opportunity scholarship, a voucher, if you will, and give it to a private school that's going to give their child an excellent education? We should demand excellent education for all of our students. And quite frankly, we really shouldn't care where it comes from. Who is your headliner of the week? Who is your headliner of the week? Who is your headliner of the week? Head, 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 headliner of the week. And welcome back to Domecast. It is indeed time for Headliners of the Week, the segment where we uh, ask our panelists to uh, name the, the biggest newsmaker of the week, and uh, then we'll decide uh, who's the biggest uh, headliner in the news this past week in North Carolina politics. So we'll start with uh, Will Doran from the NNO and PolitiFact. Will, who's your headliner of the week? My headliner is Laura Trump, who was around the state this week opening the Trump campaign's first three field offices in North Carolina. Um, they're kind of playing catch up with the, the Clinton campaign campaign, who currently has, I believe, 33 offices. So the Trump people still need about 30 more. Um, and actually, I think it's not even the Trump people. I think it's the, the Republican National Committee that is running these offices, although that's just kind of a, you know, a minor point. Um, but I was intrigued. She said at uh, one of them that the, uh, that the Trump uh, field game is now extremely strong in North Carolina. And I'm not a political operative. I don't know if that's true or not, but if three offices is extremely strong, then I would imagine the Clinton's 33 offices mm -hmm. is strength of mythical proportions. Yeah, that's been the, the interesting thing this week. And um, I heard, uh, I guess, earlier in the week from Trump's uh, North Carolina state director who basically argued that offices are not a good metric of the strength of a ground game, that, that it's about staffing, it's about getting volunteers, and you don't necessarily need a physical presence. Now, I've been to one of the, the Hillary Clinton offices, and you know, you've got a room full of 
volunteers working together to call people, to sign people up for volunteering, to ask people for money. I think it's helpful to have a hub for that. And that's certainly been the way politics has been traditionally done. Every election cycle within usually more than a month out or two out from the election, you're going to have a ton of these offices in, in every major community for both campaigns. And what's interesting is the Laura Trump thing is most of her offices that are open this week with uh, with the Trump campaign are in partnership with the Republican National Committee, uh, which is has been on the ground here for, for some time. They argue they've got uh, a pretty good staffing in general. But of course, if it's the RNC, they've got to also promote Pat McCrory and Richard Burr and Trump. Which and, I'm sure they're not complaining about. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, it's uh, th- those are three very different candidates on, on a lot of different levels. Yeah. And if you're not exclusively uh, pushing the, the Trump candidacy, um, it, it's going to be a bit of a weaker, more diluted effort for, for Trump because you've got other people you're trying to promote. So, um, Personally, I don't know that it, uh, their, their argument of, of three versus 33 carries uh, weight, even if they have a, a fair amount of staffers who are around the state working out of their cars. Uh, it, it does make a difference to have offices. But at any rate, so Laura Trump is in the hat. Uh, she is definitely a North Carolina native and becomes sort of the, the main surrogate, I think, for the Trump campaign in North Carolina when Trump's not here uh, doing his own rallies. So definitely a strong option for headliner. So uh, we'll go next to Craig Jarvis. Craig, who's your uh, headliner of the week? Well, uh, speaking of elections, uh, I'm going to go with the uh, Human Rights Campaign in Equality NC, which this week made some endorsements and at the same time announced they're they're moving into a new phase, which is the uh, get out the vote phase. They've endorsed certain state legislators and and they say they're really going to be ramping up the uh, efforts to get, you know, some of those elected if possible and maybe unseat a couple of incumbents. One interesting fact that they kind of mentioned was they're, they're saying now that they that there are th- something like 300,000 LGBT adult potential voter eligible voters in North Carolina right now and that the winning margin of victory in the last two presidential elections in this state was only 180,000 so they're trying to make the point that they are potentially uh, a force that's going to make a difference all right human rights campaign uh, as a potential for headliner of the week and I think it's unusual for them to jump into state legislative races they obviously do uh, endorsements for for some time in, in bigger races but obviously HB2 has gotten them probably more interested in in what the North Carolina Carolina legislature looks like than they might have been yeah, otherwise. Yeah. Early on, they decided to jump into this one. And as as Governor uh, McCrory well knows, he is still feeling uh, like he was beat up a bit, I think, by their early uh, arrival in, the, in, in all this. In fact, they told him this is going to be war. Yeah, and according to him, you know, this group is more powerful than the NRA. So, you know, if a, something that politifactorated false, by <laughs> <yeah>. the way. <laughs> according to him is the key. Yeah, this. so it's, it's interesting to see uh, how they'll play out in this. And, of course, the, the end game for, for Democrats and, and sort of LGBT advocacy groups in, in this legislative race is that uh, they need to flip, I guess it's four or five seats in the House to break the supermajority. No one really believes that uh, the Democrats, uh, uh, owing to gerrymandering, can really no. take over either the, no. the House or Senate. But uh, if you can uh, get Roy Cooper as governor and then get a break the veto-proof majority in the legislature, you can't necessarily undo HB2 and some of these other laws, but you can, I guess, stop other sorts of social legislation from being passed. So I guess that's sort of the, the end game, at least for, for this election, for groups like Human Rights Campaign. So we've got Human Rights Campaign versus uh, Laura Trump uh, for this week's uh, Headliner of the Week. And uh, since we've been on, on HB2 so much this week, um, let's go with Laura Trump. She's uh, been uh, an interesting presence in this state. Um, and 
definitely shows the the office issue with the the, the Trump campaign, uh, sort of highlighting whether we're really going to uh, have a, a ground game for Trump and the RNC in the state, or whether the the strategy really is Donald Trump doing rallies every week, which is what we've been getting. We're getting two of them next week in uh, Keenansville and in High Point. So uh, Lord Trump's the headliner of the week. And that brings us to the end of this week's Domecast. I'm Colin Campbell. Thanks so much for tuning in this week, and we will talk to you next week. You've been listening to The Domecast, a production of the News and Observer and the Insider State Government News Service. You can keep up with the conversation by reading Under the Dome in the Daily Print Edition or online at newsobserver.com. The Insider is found online at ncinsider.com.